Welcome back, Theatre Pearl listeners. We're kicking off the new year with a brand new podcast series, Industry 101. I'm your host, Jen Dawson, Theatre's Associate Director of Educational Programs, and this is Episode 1, Intro to Industry, with Dr. Harper Price. Before beginning, I'd like to thank our program supporters, Arcutus Biotherapeutics, Dermavant Sciences, Galderma, Insight, Sanofi Genzyme, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. This is an independent medical education program, and Pedra is solely responsible for all of the program content and the selection of all presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty. Now, I would like to introduce the program chair. She'll be leading us through this series, Dr. Harper Price. Dr. Price completed her medical degree at Thomas Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and her internship in dermatology training at Penn State Milton S. Hershey Medical Center in Hershey, Pennsylvania. She joined Dr. Ronald Hansen at Phoenix Children's Hospital in 2009 after completing her pediatric dermatology fellowship at New York University and became the program director of the pediatric dermatology fellowship shortly after joining PCH. Dr. Price is the director of the Multidisciplinary Congenital and Genetic Skin Disease Clinic and Epidermolysis Bullosa Clinic at PCH, as well as co-director of the Vascular Anomalies Clinic. In 2014, Dr. Price accepted the position of Division Chief of Dermatology at PCH. She is an active member and fellow of the American Academy of Dermatology, American Academy of Pediatrics, Society for Pediatric Dermatology, and of course, PEDRA. Dr. Price contributes to the field of pediatric dermatology through speaking at local and national meetings and publishing in peer-reviewed journals and texts. She is an active researcher and educator and frequent industry collaborator. Areas of interest and research include genetic skin diseases, cutaneous oncology, congenital nevi, vascular anomalies, hair and nail disorders, transplant medicine, pediatric lasers and surgery, as well as medical education. She has been actively involved with PEDRA for many years now, working on various projects and leading committees. She's an avid and talented photographer, and I'm honored to call her a friend. Please welcome Dr. Harper Price. Well, thank you for having me. I'm super excited. This is an area that I'm super passionate about, and you know I'm a super big PEDRA fan, so my first podcast with you all, and looking forward to this series a lot. I am too. And I'm really excited for this episode because this is sort of an ask me anything slash getting to know you style interview. So I think we should just jump right in. We've got a lot of questions. So tell us a little bit about your background and what sparked your interest in working with industry. Um, I am, for those people um, joining, I'm a pediatric dermatologist at Phoenix Children's Hospital. Uh, I'm division chief and I run the fellowship and I also run a a pretty busy research uh, unit here with Judy O'Haver, who's uh, my nurse practitioner and PhD. So that is sort of my background. Uh, Always love research. And it's really an interesting question. How does one get, get started and end up in clinical trials? And I've been out of out of training for a while, so I I will tell you that there certainly wasn't as many drugs uh, when I was training, both for adults and certainly not for kids. And when I was in residency at Penn State and fellowship at NYU, I just saw like people doing talking about trials. I remember the trial for etanercept, and the attendings would ask us to recruit patients, and I was really interested. We had uh, Diane Thibitot doing acne trials, and I was I was fascinated. We were part of 
part of knowing about it, but we weren't actually like participating in it. So I had a little bit there. Um, and I love, always loved science. I was a microbiology major. I worked in a lab for a while, undergraduate all four years. So I think I always had that, that research interest. And I joined Phoenix Children's and I worked with Judy and Dr. Hansen and they were all doing trials. They did the Pemecrolimus trial, a lot of scabies and lice, which I don't do anymore. I don't do those. Um, and Judy was a great mentor uh, and I just really naturally fell into it. Uh, and with the with the push of some of my colleagues, Larry Eichenfield and other people um, that were doing it, it really just became something that I said, how how can I help kids? How can I get more drugs to market? Somebody has to do these trials. So I became really passionate about being part of that journey to help get these drugs to market for children. You know, I'm really struck um, by what you said. You, you know, in your early career, you were part of knowing that these trials were happening, but not participating. So how do you get from knowing to participating? <laughs> yeah, that's, it's a, it's a journey. Um, and I think it, I think a lot of programs now in Durham residency, you, 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 I think we're very aware because there are so many drugs that big places do have big clinical trials units. And I would imagine, um, and the audience can let me know too, like there's probably opportunities to see and do these things, but as I was training, there really wasn't. So I think if you think you might be interested and you're a resident or even a medical student say, hey, can I do that um, research visit with you today? I will grab medical students with me and I'll say, hey, do you want to come in and just, I have to quick do a quick research visit and they'll come in and they're like, oh, wow. And here's how you do an easy score, a posi score. Um, I actually have a lot of my rotating residents and fellows learn disease assessment scores because that's what we do in these trials. And actually, insurances are requiring them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so some of these research tools are becoming real life tools already. So I think um, get interested early on, get a little bit of exposure is what I would recommend. And then, you know, I think my big thing is be at a place where you have the opportunity to do it with people that are already doing it or mm -hmm. that you're brave enough to jump into it on your own. So I'm, I'm really the only person here that does clinical trials besides Judy. Uh, and so sometimes that is kind of overwhelming. Who's my backup? Who's, who's going who's gonna to help me? Um, because it is a big commitment. Um, but I think once you learn it, uh, research is very repetitive. It's very scheduled. Um, if you like type A and organization, it's very organized. And so uh, you build a team or you use your existing team um, and they'll bring you up to speed. You can get there. Mm -hmm. There's so much to talk about in, in that response. And I know you, I know you're a creative person. Um, and so I want to hear your kind of personal story. Tell me, like, just sort of walk me through your first experience with industry. You know, it's funny. I had trouble thinking about what my true first experience was. Um, I think I'm going to say as an attending, you know, as a junior faculty I do remember sitting here um, with site monitors when Dr. Hansen was here and Judy was here and them sitting and we're like, what is this all about? And I think my first invitation to do a real clinical trial myself uh, was actually Larry Eichenfield. He probably doesn't know this, but when we fill out surveys, then when they ask you to do studies and if you decline a study or you say, it's not for me, or even if you agree to it, they'll say, is there anybody else we should reach out to that you think would be a good investigator? And people started putting me on there because I think I put a little bit of a, 
you know, a, a feeder out with, with Larry and some of the other senior people. And I said, I'd really like to do clinical trials. How do I do it? They knew I was interested. And so they would actually respond on these surveys to some of these bigger industry partners. And he'd give my email and then he'd email me and say, Hey, I told company X that you might be interested. And I was like, thanks. That's awesome. And so it gives you a little bit of street credit because if you haven't mm -hmm. done trials before, and especially if you're going to work with a big company, all they're going to ask you, how many trials have you done? None. Mm -hmm. You know, how many, I mean, you feel like, you know, this little person, I don't have any experience, but by people edifying you, our senior, our senior clinicians and researchers, I got more street credit. And I'd also mm -hmm. was in a place where I had research infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And so what I can remember, uh, my first real trial with industry myself, me as the PI was an eczema trial. And it was for a small company for a drug now that's approved that's owned by another company. And it was so cool because they actually flew us out to uh, California. We got to see the lab, where they make it, how they come up with these compounds. It was for an atopic, it is for an atopic dermatitis drug. And I felt like I understood the process from how they thought about this to how the trial came to fruition. We, we met the, um, the gentleman that was running the trial. He was also a dermatologist. And I thought, what a cool job. Like if you don't end up seeing patients, you could work here and run clinical trials. I mean, really cool. And he got to write the whole protocol and come yeah. up with all that creativity, which to me is, is the really fun part, right? Um, and so I, I saw it kind of from beginning to end in a small sense where I felt like I was really part of this, this team because it was a small company. And gradually they were bought out and we finished the trial and now it's a drug that everyone knows. But um, that was my first real experience that I really remember being impacted and being like, this is me. I'm the PI or the principal investigator. Um, and it it was nice because it was a small jump with a very little intimate, I'll say family of of industry that I got to know. I mean, I would call the head of the company on the phone. Like that was the type of relationship I had with these people. So I felt very supported. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it solidified that identity for you of like, yes, this is, this is my jam. Like I want to do this now. Oh yeah. I mean, it gives you confidence, right? I think sometimes they say small baby steps, small steps, right? I think you don't see a ton of companies like that now. This was, you know, many years ago, but I, I think it did give me the confidence to feel like, okay, I have one under my belt. You know, I I've done this and I can do it again. Um, and here's the, here's what I learned. And, and every trial, even now you learn something, Jen, it's, it's not a, like, you know, it's, I'm always learning new things. Um, and so I think the more experiences, um, the better, the better you become and the more you learn to work with different types of companies and different types of trials and, and disease states. Yeah. And all things that we'll end up covering in this industry 101 series down the road for sure. Yes, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I'm really curious about, and this might be a silly question, but um, for those like medical students who maybe just have no exposure to this at all, what exactly does it mean as an academic clinician to be a PI on a clinical trial? Like, let's dive into that a little bit. <laughs> Well, I don't, I don't certainly want to scare anyone, but being a PI is a huge responsibility. Um, I would suggest if you had a choice to start out as a, a co-investigator, sub-investigator, um, it's always a little bit less pressure and to learn from someone. I was able to learn from Judy O'Haver, who uh, again, works with me and has been an amazing resource for me. 
Um, but along the way, I've kind of more independent now with trials and, and the principal investigator role is really important. Uh, number one, you are the contact for everything. You are responsible for every aspect of that trial. Even if you don't do it, you don't pack and ship that specimen, you are responsible for it. You mm -hmm. have to do the Alcoa training. You, it, you are, you are the boss, you are the you know, you're, you're the janitor, you're the, the cleaning person, you're the, you are everything, um, you're, you know, the, you have to make sure every aspect of it runs right. If one chain in that, you know, link doesn't work, it falls on you. Um, you know, you are, if you're in France on vacation and you have to sign some queries, they are going to find you. <laughs> so <laughs> you sound like that might've happened before. <laughs> but I know somebody else and I'm always really, you know, something you don't think about. I'm taking vacation. Who's going to cover me if they have need something. There's data locks, for instance, like in the middle of a study, like everything has to be clean. Everything has to be great. Um, and I have really been lucky to have a wonderful uh, nurse research coordinator who knew clinical trials and did research before. So not only can she do the visits and the medical stuff, but she does all the coordination. So Again, building that team, I would say for anyone just starting, um, have a team that knows what they're doing and take the PI role very seriously. It, in, in the end, it's you sign legal documents, that is you, and you never want to risk, you know, doing either something you didn't know about that you made a mistake or just being neglectful um, and not really understanding your role. And they will emphasize that. They'll emphasize that to training. They'll emphasize that along the way. Um you know, saying why well, I didn't know and, um, you know, wasn't aware of that is doesn't doesn't really cut it. And you have mm. to be humble. That's the other thing I would mm. say is um, we had a, a monitor here yesterday and I missed signing something and I signed like a completely wrong month. And how strange was that? And I didn't catch it. And my nurse coordinator didn't catch it. And it's a study document. And I said, that's just so weird. I know. Mm. I, I don't know why I was just spacing out. Have to be attentive. Um, you have to be a detail-oriented person and have someone always check your work. The stakes are high. We were talking about <laughs> getting. It sounds scary, but it, yeah. it, it isn't. It's just, I think sometimes in our roles, we get good at things and comfortable and we can become mm -hmm. relaxed. And I am always uh, vigilant and diligent knowing my role and that my whole institution, I, I work for Phoenix Children's, is counting on me to to do a study well. I If I get a not so great reputation it's going to affect all my other reputations with industry, right? I, we want people to work with us. We want people to come in and say, your site's so great. You're organized. Your documents are up to date. I love your research coordinator. We love your hospital. Um, that's what you want. And we hear that a lot. We hear like, wow, we love your site. We love coming here. I mean, also we're in Phoenix, it's kind of fun. It's warm, but <laughs> um, we get to know, you know, the monitors are here all day. So you really get to know people and it's just important to be present um, make yourself available and, and keep, keep that good relationship. I want to talk about the relationship piece a little bit, because one of the topics that we'll probably get into later on in the series is working with large versus startup companies. And you talked about working with that smaller company for that AD trial and how it was very much like a family. And you had the ability and the comfort to be able to call the head of the company if you had a question or vice versa. So talk a little bit about how you build relationships with different companies. I imagine there's different people at everyone and we're all humans. So we have different attitudes. We have different <laughs> demeanors. How do you go about building those relationships? Yeah. So I think you un un unfolded a couple questions there, sort of 
big industry, small industry or company and, mm -hmm. and small company and, um, and, and relationships and relationship building. So I, I, I like to unpack it a little bit and start out with smaller companies. I am, mm -hmm. I am going to be honestly very biased because I love doing rare disease. I think, you know, mm -hmm. that, um, big interest in EB and genetic skin disease. So I may do a trial where I'm only going to enroll two or three patients. Mm. Um, it's a lot of work. Um, those are often really small companies. They may not even be based in the U S and, uh, super fun to work with totally different time zones. Um, we get sent, you know, we get fun trees. We get to learn about different cultures and things through this. And like I said, the small companies, there is a, there's to me is a difference because you tend to get to know the crew. They tend to stay around in my mm. experience. So the, I don't see as much turnover generally. Um, so those are the positives of it. I think you, you can be more involved. Uh, for example, too, I, I think we, I think I get involved more in the manuscript writing as an investigator when it's a smaller company and there's a smaller number of investigators. I mean, I'm not, I'm not Dr. Eichenfeld and I'm not Dr. Paller. I'm not going to be on those big sentinel, huge trials. You know, I, I know they're going to be an author. I'm not, but I get the opportunity to do some of that rare disease work and be part of those from start to finish. And they offer it because they like working with us and they know we put our heart and soul into the trial. So I think that's really lots of reason for my passion for small companies. However, um, I want to be fair on both sides. <laughs> Small companies can go under, small companies can lose funding, uh, small mm. companies can get bought by other companies. So there's that risk. They may not have as much funds for you uh, as a bigger company would have. They may have a more limited budget. On the same side, recruitment to them is so important because they these patients are so dire to them that sometimes they will bend the budget or work with you a little bit more because you say, you know what, I am going to bring in five patients with tuberosclerosis. I have a huge population. They want your patients. Mm. So it's, it's leverage. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do have a special place in my heart for, for small industry, big industry, um, definitely probably going to be your bigger, bigger trials, like for acne drugs and psoriasis and eczema. We all know that those companies, um, they have it worked out. You're going to have a, a clinical research organization that you're going to work with you're not probably going to interface a lot with the, during the trial with, with a lot of the, the industry um, executives themselves, I found um, it's a little harder to get answers. Sometimes it's a little hard to find the person making the decision. Um, and sometimes personally, I felt a little removed at times, but I do find that that relationship building, you just mentioned, how do you do that? Um, meeting up with them at the Academy of Dermatology mm -hmm. at PIDRA. Um, put a face to a name, make them know you, uh, learn who the big players are uh, and, and show them that your passion, you're interested, you, you know, um, if you believe in the drug and the process and the trial and that you're excited for it, that can, that can really help. But it is a little bit like going to a small college versus a big college. <laughs> yeah. It sometimes doesn't feel as intimate, um, to be honest, in my experience. Um, but those trials are just as important. And I think there can be some lag times. I think with both, um, when you're talking about turnaround times for like legal or your contract, um, sometimes bigger companies have a lot more steps to go through. Everybody knows legal takes forever. And mm -hmm. so there may be a lot more back and forth, speaking in general, with larger companies uh, than than smaller. But I I think they both play a role and learning to work with both is, is really important. Um, I think... 
it is what you make it. I still mm. say that, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about doing, um, you know, industry trials, but have you ever done your own through an investigator initiated study? I have an interesting story about that. <laughs> um, I I have thought a lot about that. And I think, honestly, Jen, this is a super untapped place for mm. both young investigators and and, and mid-career uh, senior investigators. I, when I meet with industry, they often will encourage us to write uh, protocols for their, uh, their, uh, their drugs and ask, is there anything else you think this would be good for? Okay, it's works for disease X, do you have any other thoughts? Because they're always wanting to expand their indication. Here mm-hmm. other people are are using it for other things, or I use a lot of things off label and in derm and peds derm. So that's kind of par for our course. If one thing's approved, right. we put it on everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, have a, for, for good or for bad, but I, I haven't truly written one for a drug and I'll tell you why, but I did have an experience um, with a new, with a device. Mm-hmm. So I did write uh, a, um, an investigator initiated uh, protocol with a for a new device application, which required me to go through the FDA. Uh, and if you've never done that, that's certainly a learning uh, experience in itself. Um, I was looking at a laser. That was the device, and uh, it was early in my career. I think that was very uh, brave of me at the time. I don't think I would repeat that necessarily in the same <laughs> sense. But I'll tell you what my barrier was and has been from writing IISs is because at our institution, if you are trying to repurpose a drug other than for its FDA indication, our, our IRB, which we have to use, it requires a, a new drug application and that would go through the FDA. So it would be mm-hmm. unusual in my circumstance, in my institution specifically to say, I have cream X and it's approved for this, but I wanna use it on, on 10 patients with this. And the company is willing to give me the drug if they approve my protocol. It would be hard for me to do here. And that's just sort of the environment that I'm in. But I know lots of other people that have talked about that, have been successful doing that. So I highly encourage it. Again, I think it's there's not enough of that. Everyone here, especially in Pedra and out there in Peace Term has creative ideas about, you know, sort of what what to what to what to do with things and they're doing things already that they're not publishing or talking about. And so I think this is a great way to partner with industry. But you're but you have some independence. It's your idea. It's your creative protocol. They're helping you or they're giving you a, a grant or the funds to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think um, that's that's a plus. And also, if you're allowed to use a central IRB, I am not usually. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're in a private practice, you know, or you, you practice privately, but you're affiliated with an institution, you're allowed to use a, a central IRB. It might be much easier for you to do these kind of trials so it's certainly a wish of mine. It's just been a little bit unachievable uh, with with what I the kind of the situation I'm in. But I I think um, they see you as a thought leader because you're obviously coming to them about that drug or about that condition. And so it's just another way for that relationship building. Even if you just talk it up a few times to them at the AD or a Pedra meeting or an SBD meeting, keep reaching out. Uh, keep discussing it. They'll usually say, I usually uh, get to know the medical science liaison. And I mm-hmm. say, please let me know if you have calls or if there's an ongoing call for IIS and what you guys would be willing to to do and stay in touch with them. 
I'm sure we could fill an entire section or, or an entire podcast on just IIS and, and, you know, pitfalls and pearls. Yes. <laughs> and I'm sure hopefully we'll be able to incorporate that into the series, but um, it is really interesting. It does sort of allow a researcher to bring forward something they've already been working on. Yes. So how do you, how does industry, how does working alongside industry fit with your research projects and your academic goals? Yeah, I, I used to keep them very separate, which in retrospect was kind of silly. I had a list of projects and it'd be clinical trials and then like investigator led projects mm-hmm. slash Petra projects. Mm-hmm. We've got both. And what I, what I saw is there's common things on both sides, right? So I, the same disease processes that I'm passionate about are usually the things that I'll agree to do clinical trials in or do PETRA collaborative studies, or I have my own thing going. So I said, you know what, gosh, I'm, you know, I, I love EB for instance, epidermolysis bullosis. So I found ways to not just partner with industry to, to be a, a PI, but to also when that drug comes to market or goes through the approval process, there's marketing people, there's advocacy people, there's educators, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. So maybe a new drug is coming to market that um, even primary care physicians might be able to prescribe for eczema. Be a part or consider being a part of the education of the primary care doctors for atopic dermatitis. You can do that through the help of industry. And so I've, I've sort of made it a 360 because I, I love helping out with disease-based education. I do that a lot with EB. And I struggled a little bit, Jen, with like feeling, is this a conflict of interest? And what I have done and how I've built my research division is any work that I do consulting for industry, I actually don't receive anything myself. It goes back to my institution and into my little pot of research money. So for me, I feel like it's all the same. I'm teaching about the disease. I'm educating people. The um, advisory boards and things, sometimes that industry will invite you to as an investigator because you've done the trial, you you kind of have first world knowledge of what that product feels like or whatever. Those are really important feedback for them to get. And again, I don't take those funds. I don't take the funds as a PI either. So I feel like I'm, I don't have a vested interest in that, only in that it just continues to to keep research afloat, but it's, to me, it takes away a little bit of that conflict of interest. And we're going to have another podcast on that too. (laughs) Yeah. That's another great topic, but it's the way that I've sort of dealt with it because I do enjoy, I do enjoy that teaching aspect that they will actually provide advocacy and education for your patients. That's a really important that we, we need to continue to push them to do that. And they, and they all say, what, what do your patients need, want? Like for some of these rare diseases, oh, we need a lot of stuff. We need educational materials. We need a website. We need someone to talk to. They mm-hmm. have all those resources. It's so amazing. Like why not leverage that and work with them? So you become a thought leader mm-hmm. just by working with industry. I, I feel like that's helped me um, become someone that people think, oh, EB, you know, call, call, call Harper, you know, and I, and, and I know some of us, uh, you know, we have a, a circle with some of these rare diseases and even big diseases like atopic, everybody knows who the big players are because they're invested, not just doing the trial, but they help out with it in a consultation and a disease education and advisory role. Those are really cool things that like nobody ever said when I started, like, hey, you can do all these things. I just kind of got asked and I felt a little bit conflicty. You know, I was like, mm-hmm. eh, you know, and so I've sort of worked it out where I feel like I'm giving back. I do it on my own time um, and I enjoy it and I learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it lets me keep up with things. So I, I really, 
I really think that's fueled fueled my research. And and I, I think also I want to say too, um, if I may, that learning about studies um, and reading all these protocols that they send you and <laughs> going through it, you can be a consultant on study design before the study even comes out, you know, before it's wow. even approved. You read so many of these clinical trials and these protocols that you become really good at writing and knowing this isn't feasible. This isn't going to work. That's mm -hmm. too much on the kid. Um, there's too many study visits. That's too much blood. You really learn. And so I feel like I you're think I'm crazy. I love to write protocols because I feel like I understand them and I know what goes in a budget because of clinical trials. So I went to do my grant. I know how to write a budget. Yay. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> like these are all like great researcher life skills. Um, so yeah. I, I think there's a lot of ways that, that this mixes over into your own research career. Mm. Um, you don't have to say, oh, I just do industry or I just do my own research. You can mix these both successfully is what I'm saying. I really like what you said about you've kind of come full circle, 360 degrees, what you said. And then I, your, you know, your answer really got me thinking about, where does advocacy, like patient advocacy fit into this whole puzzle? Like where's the intersection of academic and industry and advocacy? Where does that happen? Yeah, for me, it, it's, it's, it's intertwined. It has, if you, what I've noticed too, is that these companies, whether it's in, whether it's a new class of drug or, you know, the second drug type X, everybody sort of comes to the table saying, we're going to do this trial and then here's the population we're going to hit and here's how we're going to support that population. And I've been really happy to hear that, honestly, because the worst thing is we all work hard. We get this drug to market. It's proven safe and effective and nobody can afford it. Right. Or mm -hmm. the people that need it, the kids that need it can't get it. And so you'll you if you sat in, you'd hear me saying this all the time, like when we get to that point where the trial's closing, the next steps are our marketing, you know, all this stuff. How do we bring it to market? I say, you've got to get it to the people that need it. How are you going to do that? And I press, um, you know, is this going to be affordable? Are you going to have, um, you know, a compassionate um, access program? What are your, what are your copays going to be? Like, you guys have to think about this. They, you know, they have other, I mean, they, all, many of the companies, all of them have great hearts and they want the drug, but they also have a bottom line. Right. And we get that. So I emphasize that because I feel like that's my job as an advocate for my patients and my families. If if I'm doing this, I have to help ensure that they can get it. And I always say that a hundred times. I also love that some of the companies, thinking of one in particular who has a, a indication for an, an over overgrowth uh, disorder, it's such a rare disease. They put out so much disease education and dropped it off for me. And I use it all the time. To me, that's being an advocate for your patients and explaining things to families and resources. You have a color book with someone that looks like them. Like, when would they ever get that? You know, these companies can put the money and the resources behind that when we we can't as as clinicians generally. So I, I think those are things that you can sit down. They really want your opinion as a thought leader, whatever you can say, hey guys, what's your advocacy plan? How, how are you going to get this to mark? Bring it up to them. They should be thinking about that already. And it's a really important role that we can play to push them in that direction. I love that um, you, you sort of go into all of your work then with two hats on. You're going to be a researcher and a PI, but you're also going to be that patient advocate and you're going to be oh, that yes. voice representing the patients. And <laughs> um, I think it's, 
I mean, that's of course the reason why we're all here, right? Is, yes. is for patients. So it makes sense, but I think probably, and I'm sure that can sometimes get lost. So I, I really like that you emphasize, bring it up, talk about it right away. Yep. And I, I have to say, like, I think anybody who really, I mean, we all love Pete's Durham. That's why we're, we're doing this podcast and we're, we're all here, but the patients are what inspire us, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's what my research questions come from. I if I just quit seeing patients and did clinical trials, I, I you know, I, I'm sure at some point I will be want to retire and <laughs> and be <laughs> tired, but like, they're the ones that inspire me. I can't imagine not having that impetus because you, you just don't, you wouldn't connect the dots otherwise. Like you'd just be kind of going through the moves in my, my, my idea and getting to know these patients and families through their clinical trials visits also super awesome. And and you get to know people so well, they are kind of a, they are kind of, even though they're supposed to be research subjects, they are kind of your patients. So um, Mm -hmm. it's, it is really hard to separate the two. And I think they're really important to think both ways. Okay. So you talk a lot about, you know, your, your, this experience that you're having of this like 360 degree experience, you are an advocate for your patients, you're this researcher and you're a PI on trials. And that all sounds super wonderful, but we all know it's not that easy. So what are some of the lessons learned? What are some of the challenges you've run up against? Yes. Challenge that's, uh, there are many, and we can fill <laughs> a whole nother 20 minutes with, uh, stories and discussions of challenges. Um, and I, I think we will, I think we plan to have a, another podcast, which we'll, we'll really talk to some people who've been doing this a long time, uh, that are senior and hopefully get their, their best stories and their best, best advice. I think when I think about some of the things that have been truly challenges, um, for me is, is sometimes despite your best, best efforts, um, your team's efforts, sometimes trials don't work sometimes they get pulled because something has happened. There's been a contamination. Sometimes the company decides to close it because they get uh, midterm data and it's not great. And you put your heart and soul into something. One time even, um, so dying to do this trial and it took a long time. Uh, It was one of those bigger companies back and forth. A lot of people got started before me and we were literally on the phone doing our site initiation visit, which is like your next step to getting activated. And the, and the enrollment nationally had been ongoing for maybe six or eight weeks. So I knew we were already behind the eight ball and we were all just, everyone was raring to do this trial. And literally as we're doing the training to start the trial, they closed the trial, <laughs> closed to oh, enrollment no. because they met the mark. And I, it literally was one of the most disappointing things that in, in the research side of things that I've ever experienced, because I had promised Jen, this, this trial Mm. to patients, I had Mm. said, this is coming. And so I over promised. (laughs) I'll never do that again. That's a hard Um, lesson learned for sure. Oh, I'm months and months of back and forth with budget. And this was a big company that wasn't honestly easy to work with. And I, and I kick myself again because I did it again. And I went back and it didn't work out. And I just realized with a, with another mm-hmm. arm of a different drug for that company. And I said, uh, before I said, I'll never work with that. I just not, it's not going to be me. It was a bad experience. It just, this is not a good fit. And that's rare for me with anything mm-hmm. really. But I, I went back and everyone said, don't do it. <laughs> 
don't, it's going to take a long time. And, and the same thing happened kind of where we got to the point where we couldn't come to conclusion on a budget. And I really bent and I said, okay, I still want to work with you guys, bent the budget a little bit. And they said, no, we're just not going to work with you anymore. And I, again, I was like, it's like, you know, they say shame, first time, shame on them, second time, shame on you or whatever that is. So yeah, you got to go with your gut. Um, you know, if you've got to, it, there are going to be disappointments are going to be highs are going to be lows. Um, just always keep that open as I think always do your maximal effort. Don't put in minimal effort because you think something might not work. The other thing I'll say too, is don't the other challenge and, and sort of a lesson learned would be don't estimate how many people you can recruit because you want to mm-hmm. do a trial. You want to be a PI. Oh, how many can you, do you think you can get this many? Do you, and, and I remember early on and still now I feel a little pressured, like, mm, I don't know, like sort of that under promise over deliver, right? Like mm-hmm. you can always add more patients to your IRB and you can, you can, they're always happy when you get more, but if you don't meet your mark, you look like a site that, well, they just don't produce. So they said they're going to get five, they got one and now we're closing, right? So that's not right. in a position you want to be in um, at all. And then it's sort of my last, sort of, I think my, my last um, sort of pearl slash challenge is that make sure you have a backup. Like I said, (laughs) (laughs) if you're the only one, you're it. And so having, if your research coordinator suddenly quits or goes out to, you know, on a paternity or maternity leave, or you don't have a backup, you have to know what to do. All those things, Uh, you need a backup for yourself and you need to make sure you know your deadlines. You don't want to be somewhere and be caught off guard or to be looked at the person that didn't, didn't sign off on their queries or you ruined the data lock. And so you do have to think about your vacations. You do have to keep them. I'm, I'm going to be in the country. I'm out of the country. Here's this. I'm going to get this done before. And it involves some planning um, because you're a really important person to them and to your site and to your subjects. Mm-hmm. Well, you're right. We are going to do, I think, a whole session on <laughs> challenges. <have> <laughs> Let's talk about what's coming in this series. Oh, well, we've got a lots of cool things. I'm sure you've got the the formal the formal list there, but we will be, um, so I will be hosting uh, along with Jen and we'll be bringing people on to talk about some of these challenges. Uh, so we're hoping to have a, an episode about uh, challenges and lessons learned and bring in maybe a round table. Great time to ask uh, questions. We'd love to have an episode on the investigator initiated studies, uh, bring on some key faculty or faculty member that can talk about their experience of, of doing that from start to finish. Um, what else have we got there, Jen? Oh, so much. Uh, we, we talked about navigating conflicts of interest and conflicts ethics. Interest. Yes. Yeah. That's, oof, that's, that's, Big one. that's a toughie. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so much to cover. This is such a rich topic and we've only just slightly scratched the surface here with this. Ask me anything. I think now is a great time to take some questions from our live studio audience. So our first question comes from Dr. Maria Buthi, and she wants to know, how do you go about approaching a medical science liaison? How do you get started early in your career if you want to do clinical research? Oh, if I was in your, I would love to watch this podcast like 13 years ago um, (laughs) or listen to this podcast 13 years ago. I, my suggestion, Maria, would be to, um, if you go to the academy or the SPD or PEDRA is to um, communicate, to be uh, social with these people. It may not be the MSL um, that's at all the meetings, even the booths that everyone gets the free stuff with at the AED. You can say, who is who is anyone here from the medical science side? They're often way back in those things that look like 
those little trailers way in the back and you can actually set meetings with them during the academy meeting if if you attend and so one of the reasons you know being a pediatric dermatologist i that i like to go to the academy meeting is to interface with industry uh, because that's where a lot of discussions happen and a lot of meetings in fact sometimes i feel like i don't get to go to the meeting because i'm always meeting with with people in industry about you know interest in what's going on um and, and and sort of what's what's coming down the pipeline and what I could get involved in. So I would definitely recommend bring your card, uh, find out who they are either at the booth um, or at, at one of the smaller meetings like Pedra. Just go up to the 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 little vendor the, where they have the patient advocacy and vendors in the industry and say like I really love to get involved. The other thing as I uh, mentioned earlier is I mean I know you and I know you're going to be amazing researcher and a, a big um, part of, of, you know, someone who's going to do clinical trials in their own research. I'm excited for you. So I think having your your senior people and your your friends and the people that are already doing this vouch for you and say, like, when someone says, who else should I ask? I'm looking for other sites, Maria. And so advertise, advertise to your friends and colleagues and your senior uh, people that are doing trials. I want to get involved. What are you doing? Use them. And a great place to do and mingle, as you know, is PEDRA and SPD. So that's a good place. There's smaller meetings where you can get a little bit more one-on-one -on -one time, right? Um, and uh, don't be afraid. Just go right up to people uh, and, and say, I want to get involved. I think these companies want people that want to be there. They don't want to have to beg people to do the work and to do the trials. And they're really looking for good, uh, good clinical sites. And so those would be my, my two or three main recommendations. And then once you make contact, stay in touch. Like I was saying, email them. Um, sometimes these uh, medical science people change. And so once they have your email, um, you know, you can also say, hey, maybe I didn't do the trial with whatever, but I want to hear the results. Can you let me know when these come out? They keep you in the know of like everything, which is one thing I didn't get to mention, but I love is knowing the pipeline, knowing what's coming, when's it getting approved, what's the data, kind of the first to know. And so the more you kind of insert yourself um, and keep in touch with them, the more they'll think about you and consider you for these things. Okay. And our next question, what challenges have you faced within your institution? When I started here, there was very little infrastructure for research. Uh, and because... I found a family of people that were doing trials and I learned from them. I helped push um, sort of research in the right direction, made it a priority. You know, we started out as a small community children's hospital many years ago. Now we have a research institute, we have a biorepository, we have a, a broad consent, we've got statisticians, we've got uh, science writers. We did not have this 13 years ago and it's all been over time. And so you have to be patient um, if you start at a place where that's already in place, great, get to know everybody. If you, you know, if you're looking at your first job and research is really important to you, maybe you want to go to a place that already has this worked out, um, to some extent, but it's not easy. Even some of the best research places have their, their heartaches. Um, and I hear about it. So you want people to be really honest with you and you want to say, this is the type of research I'd really like to do. Can you guys support me? Um, you know, and, and things can always change. People come and go and leave at, in institutions. But I think I would be very upfront. If that's really a big part of your career, you want to you wanna ask that and know upfront before you, you know, perhaps take that as your job at that place. The other thing is the IRB, as I mentioned. So uh, some places have it really cut out and their turnaround times are pretty short for clinical trials, putting 
putting studies through. We have two IRBs where I am and we didn't before and it took a long time. I can get a study approved faster now than I can get a budget and contract. Um, that wasn't always the case. And so the challenge was sitting in the IRB, waiting, waiting, waiting. Um, and I will say, Maria, that one of the challenges now, I'm trying to think like what I have now, um, is the the genetics part of this. So now cell therapies, um, people don't know how to deal with cells and studies with cells. <laughs> you have to have different equipment. This is all new territory, right? We have special advisory groups and and scientific boards for these new types of research and not every IRB is up to speed with that. And so that's been a challenge, uh, challenge for me. Um, I don't stay quiet. I kind of push the envelope too in a nice way. So I feel like um, kind of helping us get there. But, um, you know, I think those are just all good questions to ask and to know that if maybe every institution's not perfect and I might accept some things aren't exactly the way I wanna be, but I wanna be at this place and see them grow. Um, and that's something you you might accept. And there's no place that's got everything. I can tell you that. Okay. And one final question, also from Dr. Buthy. What has been your experience as a key opinion leader speaking with investors? I, I have done a few of those. And, um, you know, everything's been virtual when I started. So it's it's been interesting. So I've never actually been in the room <laughs> with people. It's, I did, did a few since COVID. And I... I didn't really know what to think initially, and I wasn't sure how I felt, but I kept on my side. I said I was not going to discuss um, a product. I kept my contract very clean. I talked about disease state, and I talked about drugs coming down the pipeline because that was accessible to everybody on clinicaltrials.gov, and I talked about the different types of therapies that people were working on as a broad class. Uh, we have topicals. We have genetic, you know. And I, and I felt very good doing that because I knew number one, that this was for a rare disease. And if, you know, trials are expensive and if we don't get people to, to buy in and do it. And I, and I felt like I had a little bit less of a conflict. That'd be a good topic for the conflict of interest too. But I think you have to do what you're comfortable with. Um, you know, I, that's my experience. It was an enjoyable experience. Um, it was really interesting to see the audience because they actually have a lot more medical knowledge than I thought and, and to know your audience um, because I asked like do I talk to them like medical students do I talk to them like lay people and so it was a bit of an education for me I had they let me make the slide deck and they checked it out so I had a lot of autonomy and independence so it, I think you have to decide um, if that's something you're interested in sort of know what you're getting into and and also like how much independence you're going to have uh, to really put the information out that you're going to feel is important versus the industry that you're speaking on behalf on. Thank you so much, Dr. Price. This has been really tremendous. There's so much, like I said earlier, we've just scratched the surface. I'm looking forward to doing a deeper dive on some of these bigger discussions that we have planned. And I just can't thank you enough. Uh, you are perfectly suited for this program. So thank you for saying yes. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I love it. I, uh, I hope it's helpful to people. Um, like I said, I uh, it's, it's giving back. You guys do an amazing job. So I'm happy to be a part of it and thankful that you chose me. <laughs> I'd like to thank Dr. Price for taking part in this first episode of our industry 101 series. And again, thank you to our supporters, Arcutus Biotherapeutics, Dermavant Sciences, Galderma, Insight, Sanofi Genzyme, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. If you'd like to be a part of our live studio audience, please email me at info at Make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Pedra Research and subscribe to our podcast channel, Pedra Pearls, to get the most current episodes automatically downloaded. 
You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher. Stay tuned for more episodes of Industry 101, and thanks for listening.